A lot of changes in the workplace these days and uh, have been for the last several months and for the foreseeable future. It looks like this state of change and flux is going to continue. And so how do we deal with this, especially as we come into the workforce and start working for a new company? Perhaps it's your first job or perhaps you're just changing occupations. And all of a sudden, there you are pretty much on your own because, well, the shop or the workplace... Well, it's empty, hasn't been populated for months. So how to connect all of those dots, get you started, and from the company's perspective, get you up and becoming as productive as possible in the shortest possible time. Connecting the dots. The piece in theconversation.com is entitled, How to Help New Hires as They Start Their Jobs in COVID-19 Isolation. The piece was written by Dr. Michael O'Neill, who teaches public administration and policy at the School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Michael is on the line from Ottawa. Good morning, sir. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us today. Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to uh, contribute to your show. Oh, it's great to have you with us, Michael. And I mean, uh, you, you, the first sentence in this article is something that's going to grab everybody listening because you ask everyone, do you remember the day you started your first job? And I'm going to just pause for a second because everyone listening goes, ah, right. And we all do still. So it's just a very different workplace in the fall of 2020 from any other experience that any one of the thousands of people listening to us right now could could recite uh, on on command. Michael, it's just that different. It is for, for quite a, a lot of people. And, of course, you know, the people I'm primarily interested in are, are my students uh, who are going to start new jobs uh, when they graduate. Some of them have already started new jobs. I'm also, you know, interested in, in my students who are taking up uh, internships with uh, primarily, in my case, the federal government. Uh, you know, their experience of their first day at work is going to be completely different than uh, my first day at work and the first day at work of, of even their friends and peers from even, you know, six months ago, eight, eight months ago. Well, there's no question. And you go on to say, after asking us to just have that marvelous flashback, and it is, it's a wonderful moment. And then you go on to say, well, whether you're a part-time worker or you're into your first full-time situation, uh, it's likely your first weeks at work were spent absorbing a lot of information and again i think across the board michael let's that we all get to nod and go yep that's pretty much what it was you you're a sponge for your first couple of months you can't take in enough in in any given eight hour shift can you those those first days at, at, at work those first weeks in fact you know they're, they're they're quite formative it's it's where you're going to obviously learn about your job uh, because you're, you know, you're hired to do certain things and you have certain skills that qualify you for the job, but you don't really know what the job entails until you start doing it. Right. Uh, it's how you find out about the tools that you have available. But the other aspect which uh, I'm quite interested in is, is the informal learning that goes on. You know, the conversations you have with your colleagues, uh, the first times that you that you meet with your boss. And, you know, the workplace for, for university students, for anybody, really, uh, that, that's graduating from, you know, high school, college, or university, who gets into the workplace, 
I mean, it's different than the educational environment that they were in before. So somebody, you know, those those early formative weeks are really important to how well you're going to integrate in the workplace. They're really important about how you're going to feel about your work to start with that. Mm-hmm. And also, as some research has shown recently, you know, how you're integrated in your work will actually have something to do with, uh, you'll say, your your um, uh, your loyalty or your your uh, intention to stay with that employer, right? I mean, you know, a positive start will make you feel positive towards your employer, and, and you may want to stay there much longer uh, as a result. No question about it. And it's the start also, Michael, that's also different. I mean, typically, when you were back to your first job, you, you sat down with someone, perhaps if you were young enough and, st- and a student or something, someone had recommended you or you knew somebody who knew somebody. But either way, eventually you ended up sitting across uh, a desk from someone and having a look you straight in the eye kind of conversation uh, about your intentions. What do you think you want to do with this company? Here's what we want you to do. Here's what our expe- expectations are of you. That conversation would have taken place to the new hire coming into work Monday morning, Michael, but it's not likely you would have been across a desk from anyone. All of this preamble to going to work on your first day would have been virtual. It's not likely you would have actually met anyone that you're about to go to work for. Uh, that And that certainly is a challenge. Uh, to a certain degree, I think most responsible managers, certainly in government, again, which is my area of expertise, um, you know, most of them will certainly ensure that they have that first conversation with the new recruit. Sure. But as you said, it will be virtually, you know, they'll say, well, you'll start on Monday, so let's plan a Zoom call for 10 o'clock on Monday morning, Mm -hmm. and I'll I'll welcome you on the job. I mean, so in some ways, that is still kind of like that first conversation you have. What I'm concerned about, or what interests me, is the other conversations. You know, those impromptu conversations when your boss just kind of shows up at your desk and, and says, hey, this was really good, but could you work on this a little bit? You know, that kind of informal learning that just happens through regular interactions with your bosses and your colleagues and, and peers as well, because there's other people who will be starting a new job with you. And, and there's that kind of group learning that's happening at the right. same time. And, and you can't replicate that on Zoom. You can do a lot of things on Zoom and Skype, but you can't replicate that because you know, as, as as you know from you know the interviews that you that you have on your show. I mean, if you're constantly scheduling interviews and meetings with people, uh, that's helpful. But it, it's not that same kind of impromptu in the in the moment kind of you know onboarding that that really is really important for starting a new job, particularly in government. Interesting. So how then, and, and I, I, I take everything you say at, at its word because it's true. So if there is this gap, this, and in some cases, if you're really lucky in your workplace, you'll actually meet the person you're replacing. And if you're really lucky, some, some, in some situations, that person will have given notice to the employer uh, to the point where you're on board overlapping with that person for two or more weeks. So you really really get the inside scoop on how to do the job from the person you're replacing. It's rarer these days, Michael, but it does happen. And even in that situation, that is going to be a virtual overlap. So how then does the employer fill the gap? Because it's, it, it's, it, it's that kind of, you, if you're in the workplace and, and the boss comes by and says, uh, so we're going to need this uh, by the end of the day. You at least uh, get to turn to the person at the desk next to you and go, 
what on earth is he talking about? Exactly. Uh, yeah. if, because it's, it's in, in a virtual workplace, you're going to have to send somebody an email or get some in a chat form or whatever. It's just not. So how do the employers in, in adjust at their end to take care of a lot of that information fill in? Mm-hmm. And, and that is the challenge. Um, now, uh, even in the world as we knew it before the pandemic, onboarding was already considered uh, something that was incredibly important to be done well. Yeah. And frankly, not all organizations did it well. Agreed. Uh, you know, I mean, for some organizations, onboarding was you'd arrive at your desk or cubicle or whatever work area you were assigned to. You'd be given a binder that might have had, a, you know, the org chart of the organization uh, a few key names and, and maybe a description of your job. Uh, they ensured your computer worked on the first day. They might have given you a, pad, a pen and a pad of paper, right? And that was considered onboarding. Now, we know since then that onboarding is actually much more than that. It's more than just, you know, the dry transmission of information. It's right. about, you know, the social milieu and, and also people, you know, have different needs when they start a job. You know, if you've been an intern in an organization before, your learning curve is going to be different than somebody who is a brand new recruit who's never had any experience in that place before. Right. So that means that, you know, the, 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 the binder dump that people will find on their desk when they come in might be helpful for some, but not for others. Now, move that into this world where you don't have uh, the person you can just kind of lean over to and say, I'm looking at this org chart, but, you know, why is it important? Or where am I in this org chart? Sure. I can't find myself. You don't have that. Um, so we need to find new tools and new ways in which to do it. Now, as I found, the federal government has a, a toolkit that, they, uh, that they, they have developed. And yesterday, in fact, uh, I had a chance to speak with one of the people who, who put it together. But the, the challenge that I, that I see is that while the toolkit is present, there is nothing that kind of mandates managers to actually use it. So there's still a lot of discretion where you'll have managers who will take their onboarding role very seriously sure. and they will say, I have, I have a very important duty of bringing this talented young person into a job and hopefully leave them with an impression that, w- that will make them want to spend their career in government. Uh, and they will they will schedule the Zoom calls. They will make themselves available. They will, you know, talk with people regularly. They could schedule a 15-minute call every day. I mean, there's many techniques that exist. Mm-hmm. But then, unfortunately, there's also managers who are just basically going to say, well, you know, here's the link to our website, and, uh, you know, kind of you sort yourself out. I was got to say, everything and, but and you're on your own. Our guest is Michael O'Neill, who teaches public administration and policy at the School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. A lot of Michael's students are working for the government of Canada. We'll talk a little bit about what sort of individual selects a, a career in the public service. But Michael is with us today because of a piece he wrote at theconversation.com a while ago entitled How to Help New Hires as They Start Their Jobs in COVID-19 Isolation. This has become a thing in the past eight months. A lot of people have lost their jobs. Michael, a lot of people are changing their jobs and uh, are, are moving into situations where virtually uh, they've been hired. They're being brought on board to use one 
one of your favorite words by their new company online or on Zoom. Uh, and you talk about onboarding as a key to being successful, not only for the employer uh, and having this new person uh, get up to speed and become as productive as possible in as short a time as possible, but also, and you talk about loyalty, but it's just this whole first impression that being brought on board correctly, positively, enthusiastically leaves with a new employee. You use a line in your article that my mom used to quote to me a lot, the old Will Rogers line, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And if you're the, the your employer and you want uh, dedicated, sharp young people to be really good employees, well, then the best place to, to let them know that is on day one, isn't it, Michael? And yet in your study, you found out with your own students who were doing co-op work with employers all around the capital, only about a third of them actually went through that positive onboarding experience. Absolutely. And and that is, in some ways, uh, what led me to write the article. Um, I was, uh, you know, I was quite concerned that, that the impression that my students would be getting of their first job in government for some of them uh, would not uh, be up to their expectations, and that would in some way turn them off from a career in government. Right. Uh, we have to understand that, you know, once this pandemic passes, we're going to go back in Canada to the situation that prevailed beforehand, which is of a very significant labor shortage, and particularly in areas which we call the knowledge workers. The government of Canada needs many, many knowledge workers. These are your economists, your data scientists, uh, your, your, uh, your sociologists, people who, uh, you know, work in public policy, people who break laws and, and, and regulations and so on. And it's a very competitive market for people with that skill set. Mm-hmm. So if government is not setting itself up to, uh, make their, their jobs, uh, attractive, make those first impressions of working in the federal government attractive, they're going to cut themselves off from getting a very, uh, you know, very talented individuals who are just going to choose to work somewhere else. And in Ottawa, uh, uh, we have, uh, you know, other uh, businesses that are quite significant that do hire quite a few students. I mean, you may know that Ottawa is the headquarters of uh, Shopify, which is probably the company in North America most people are talking about these days thanks to the pandemic. Sure. Well, a lot of my students are saying, I don't want to work in government. I don't want to go work at Shopify or another company in the tech sector. So as you said, you don't have a, you can't miss that opportunity to, to, to make working for government, uh, you know, attractive and a worthwhile place for people to spend their career. So let's talk a little bit about whether it is the government of Canada or government of British Columbia or the ABC Widget Company of Greater Vancouver. When that new person starts, and you know uh, the conditions are the same, whether they're working for the feds or working for a local boss, they're not going to the shop. They're not going in. They're going to stay at home. Uh, their 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 contribution to the company will be uh, through virtual uh, connections. So how then does that employer welcome that new person virtually successfully michael no that that is that is part of the the challenge right now there is not a lot of of practical research that we have uh there there was a a study out of uh university of waterloo which i i refer to in my article which has found that there's both negatives and positives to uh online work uh for for students uh, and uh, the, you know, the, the, 
the main advantage is that, you know, it suits different people's lifestyles. Oh, sure. Uh, it's, it's quite adaptable to people who, you know, don't wish to commute because they may face certain difficulties. Keep in mind, again, we're talking about young people, new workers, you know, they might not all have cars or be able to afford parking spaces. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them require, you know, rely on, on public transit or whatever. So there's an advantage to, to working from home right now. Uh, it's also developing, you know, uh, certain skills in terms of self-managing and autonomy and so on. And that's certainly something that, that is a positive um, that can come out of that experience. But of course, the negative is is that lack of social network, right? Uh, that inability to feel part of a team. And why is that? Simply because you don't see your team. So uh, while we're still kind of in early days, uh, it seems to me that uh, the the real key is to find a way of replicating the team environment uh, while ensuring that, you know, people keep their their physical distance and stay safe uh, in terms of their workplace. So that could be, uh, you know, in, in, and again, you know, some of the, 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 the um, uh, some some of the solutions that I've seen, uh, and we don't know if they work yet, but, right. but I, they seem positive. still pretty early you know, to tell. A, yeah, it's pretty early to tell, but you know, you could arrange to have a, a, a daily group meeting with everybody on your team. You know, let's say at the end of the day, and mm-hmm. just kind of you know connect everybody and say, all right, you know, what did everybody go through today? You know, what was what went well, what didn't go well. Uh, that would be certainly really helpful for a, a young person starting a job because, again, you know, the level of difficulty that you will encounter will vary from person to person. So mm-hmm. why not have a share about it? And, and it would actually also be very positive for that young person to see that other people are, are facing challenges, right? So they're not going to feel as isolated and perhaps as, you know, underperforming um, if they have a chance to interact with others. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, measures that ensure that there's a, a really good mentoring system that is in place. So right. beyond what you're doing with the team, having somebody that you could say, this is a person you can call at any time between nine and five. You don't need to book an appointment or whatever. Just call them up if you encounter a problem. Uh, they will help you out. I, I'm sure that will, you know, create a, a sense of, of safety because that person, again, will not feel isolated. And that mentor shouldn't necessarily be the box, right? Because, again, that- some... some uh, New workers will feel perhaps a bit intimidated uh, in calling their boss and saying, I don't know how to do this. That's right. But, but a, mentor, a mentor, yeah, it's, it's very important. Even in, even in the old uh, workplaces, when we used to come to the office or the workshop every day, there was uh, typically the new person. Well, you know, we're going to give, we're gonna go, here's George. George is going to keep an eye on you for your months. He's been with us for a long time now, and I may not be around it, and the other boss may not be around. But if you have any issues, George will know. He'll get you through it. And that's how that happens in a lot of workplaces, right? You get assigned someone to kind of, quote, keep an eye on you. That'll be your go-to person if you're having any uh, uh, short-term issues just settling in. So that mentor thing has been a fact in workplaces for a long time. So it's an important fact to carry on, even if the workplace doesn't resemble the old one very well at all. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think the third element, again, keeping in mind that you're thinking about, uh, you know, new workers, is ensure that right from the start they have access to, uh, we'll say, like training and development opportunities 
to ensure that that you know their skills, even though they're out of the office, that their skills continue to be you know updated uh, and uh, in line with the requirements of their job. And, and and again, you know, you get hired based on your degree, based on your experience. But there's a lot of things you will not know how to do when sure. you start your job. So you know, perhaps this this is a really good opportunity to to introduce your students to any kinds of. Uh, internal online courses they could take uh, that will ensure that they can bridge that knowledge gap, that skills gap, as quickly as they can. Interesting stuff. The, the piece at theconversation.com, friends, is entitled How to Help New Hires as They Start Their Jobs in COVID-19 Isolation. It's a provocative piece, lots of good ideas in there. The author is Michael O'Neill from the Uh, Public Administration and Policy School of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. Dr. O'Neill, it has been a pleasure having you on the program, Michael. It was a fascinating conversation. We never even got to the part about who wants to be a Fed when they grow up, but we'll have to have that conversation at some future date. I'd love to have you back on the show, sir. Well, thank you very much, Sterling. It's been very interesting to to chat with you, and thank you for your interest in my work. Indeed. Michael O'Neill at the University of Ottawa. Implementing a new national child care system would generate several important benefits for Canada's economy as we recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and recession. This according to a new study from the Centre for Future Work. The study is entitled The Role of Early Learning and Child Care in Rebuilding Canada's Economy after COVID-19. It was prepared by Dr. Jim Stanford, economist and director of the Centre for Future Work. Jim Stanford is back with us this morning. and It's great to have you back, Jim. Good morning. Thanks for returning to the program. Thank you for having me back, Sterling. Well, it's great to have you with us, Jim. Uh, you, uh, Let's just take a second and talk a little bit about the Centre for Future Work. You're a very busy guy, dividing your time uh, between Canada and Australia, dealing with uh, primarily labour-related issues. Uh, this study in uh, uh, in Canada about childcare and the need for early learning expansion, something the Government of Canada has alluded to in the throne speech, just as an idle curiosity question before we dive into the nuts and bolts of what is expected here in Canada. Jim, what's going in on Australia? Uh, well, in Australia, of course, they, they're facing the same challenge as uh, with COVID, but they've done a better job, uh, I think, kind of squashing the contagion. I think it, it helps Sterling that they're an island. So uh, they have managed to kind of seal off the country more effectively. So mm-hmm. right now there's just a few cases uh, in Australia, but um, they've certainly suffered some of the economic fallout. And um, on the childcare front, they they also have a real patchwork system. So I think some of the arguments we make in this report for the benefits of a national system uh, would would apply very well in Australia as well. Okay, and that's sort of where I was heading with the question, uh, basically not only dealing with the pandemic, and you're right, would that we could be an island too. Uh, (laughs) But but I was talking specifically about the childcare initiatives that are being uh, at least advanced in Canada, uh, and you're talking a bit about a, a hodgepodge in Australia. Is the government in Australia as keyed in to this notion as the government of Canada appears to be? And not yet. Uh, in fact, it's kind of interesting. In, in Australia, they did early on in the pandemic, they did recognize how important uh, child care is to trying to keep people at work when it's safe to actually go to work. Sure. So for, for a few months, they actually implemented a national free 
childcare program. Believe it or not, they made it free for everyone. Hmm. Uh, and that actually made a big difference. But then in, in July, I think kind of the bean counters <laughs> got uh, got worried about how much this was going to cost. And unfortunately, they did away with that program. So they are back to a situation where, you know, parents kind of have to fend for themselves trying to locate a, a place where their kids can uh, get cared for when they go to work themselves. Okay, now we'll, we'll dive into the bean counters and what they found here in Canada. But just again, on a theoretical basis, purely as as one of the underpinning principles of your report, Jim, one of the the single biggest categories of losers so far in COVID-19 has been working women. Yes, certainly. Uh, in the initial months of the pandemic, uh, women lost work at, at a significantly faster pace than men. Yes. Uh, I think that was partly because this recession, uh, unlike previous ones, frankly, uh, this one really started in the services sector. Usually a recession starts in, you know, construction or resources right. or manufacturing. This one really took hold in services. Think of all the retail and hospitality businesses that had to close down. Uh, also, uh, women are more likely to be in part-time or temporary or other forms of insecure employment. And those are the jobs that, uh, in a way, employers can get rid of first uh, when business turns down. So for both those reasons, women experienced a higher share of job loss. Now, they've made up some of the gap in the, in the last couple of months, but they're still... Um, uh, they still had more than their share of uh, a total employment declines. And now we're seeing, a, in a way, a more worrisome trend. A significant number of women have been leaving the labor force altogether. That is to say they're not employed and they're not actively seeking employment, I think in part because of the problems of childcare. Interesting. And again, uh, as uh, there appears to be no end in sight and not likely uh, Canada a little behind the, the rest of the world in terms of the lineups for the vaccine. But Jim, uh, and you, you, you deal with Australians and Canadians on a pretty regular basis. We're both in the same situation. Nothing's going to change in terms of the way we go to work for more than likely a year or so. Yes, I think so. And, and frankly, Sterling, you know, the vaccine obviously is very important and we're all hoping for it. But from an economic perspective, even if we had the vaccine today and we could give it to everyone and everyone took it, of course, um, then we'd still have a recession that would be the worst in in post-war history. We'd still have a situation where consumer spending and business investment uh, and overall confidence just have been deeply, deeply shaken by what's happened. So uh, even with the vaccine, I think we've still got a big job rebuilding the economy and and that's where I think this national child care program could make quite a difference. Well, let's talk about that a little bit then, because you talk about something called not just a national child care program. You talk about something called ELCC, Early Learning and Child Care. What's the difference between that and child care? I think the term early learning has come into vogue, uh, you know, among the policy experts, because they do want to emphasize the kind of educational aspect of a high-quality child care program. Um, I think in previous years, there might have been a tendency to think of this more or less as babysitting, you yeah. know, a kind of custodial service, get someone to just look after the kids. But the, the new scientific research on, on psycho, psychology and, and the development of children's brains and so on has really emphasized that actual learning in a, you know, in a, in a formal group environment with the right uh, curriculum and, and, and well-trained teachers 
uh, actually has huge benefits uh, for preschool kids in terms of how they develop their attention, their sociability, and in fact, their brain functions, the actual synapses. Uh, so I think that's why they prefer the term early learning these days, uh, just to make sure that we understand it's something serious here. It's part of our educational system. This isn't just hiring someone to look after the kids. And it also recognizes, uh, I think, out of absolute necessity, the fact that children are happiest when they're learning. They don't have to be told they're learning. They could be. They could think they're playing, but they are happiest when they're learning. Oh, you're 100% right, Sterling. And, of course, the best uh, early learning uh, professionals figure that out, right? I mean, the, if you go to a good quality daycare, frankly, you want to sit down and jump in with them. These these programs and the you know the educational games and toys and uh, and other facilities that they have um, are amazing, and it really is. I mean, both my kids went to uh, childcare from uh, from the age of ten months on, and um, it's it, one of the best decisions I ever made as a parent. They they learned how to communicate, how to cooperate. Uh, and um, and they also learned just from the straight up curriculum that they that they experienced. Jim Stanford is back with us. I'm looking at the report. It's a, a kind of a chewy title: "The Role of Early Learning and Child Care in Rebuilding Canada's Economy After COVID-19." An extensive report written by our guest Jim Stanford, and we're talking basically about the the costs of things now, Jim. Uh, in the summary, you say the 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 uh, program when it's up and running and implemented fully. It will create 200,000 direct jobs in child care centers, 100,000 more jobs in industries supporting that, and in the process, free up approximately well, over 700,000 Canadian women to return to work because in many cases they've simply had to place their, their professional lives on hold in order to accommodate child-rearing realities. Uh, some impressive numbers from a job production point of view. Oh, absolutely. And uh, it's interesting to think through the different ways that a national child care program would boost uh, job creation. First of all, of course, there's all those jobs in the child care centers themselves. Uh, there would be probably over a million new spaces created for preschool kids under a national program. And you're going to need, uh, as we said, about 200,000 staff uh, to fill that. Then you've got all of the industries that feed into the child care sector. Right. Uh, think about construction, for example. You're going to have to build or retrofit uh, new child care centers. We estimated uh, over 8,000 jobs uh, ongoing in the, in the construction sector. Uh, the big benefit, of course, though, is allowing parents, and in particular women, um, to uh, get back to work uh, and work longer hours, work more full-time jobs rather than part-time jobs. Uh, and that's where you really get a boost to employment. And, of course, as they go back to work, uh, those women are generating incomes, they're adding to our GDP, and by the way, they're paying taxes. So uh, this is how, in the end, uh, a national child care program actually becomes a money maker for government. Even though it's an expensive program, government is going to get back more revenue from the increased employment and economic activity than it actually costs to prepare and produce the childcare in the first place. Interesting stuff. Now, you talked to him about how they tried this on a very short-term freebie basis in Australia during the real pinch time of COVID-19 earlier this year and then abandoned it because it turned about turned out to be rather expensive. So what can we talk about or what can you tell us about in terms of, because it's in the throne speech, uh, Minister Freeland is likely to allude to it at greater length on Monday. Uh, let's talk about costs because we're talking now about a government already at the head of the line in terms of per capita spending in the whole world. 
Well, um, I, we may learn a few details from Finance Minister Freeland uh, on Monday in her fiscal update. I don't think she'll be making any big announcements about the nature of the new system. I think she's going to be putting uh, in some initial funding and also launching negotiations with the provinces. Right. Uh, of course, we always get bedeviled in Canada in the federal-provincial jurisdiction wars. Um, so the feds have indicated they're willing to... Um, Uh, take the lead in funding a national program, but they're going to need provincial buy-in, including uh, around issues about national standards uh, and so on. So hopefully she gets the ball going um, with some announcements on Monday. And then, you know, with any luck, we could start rolling out the program within a year or two. Uh, It is certainly uh, a major undertaking. I mean, you're talking about a system to educate uh, over a million preschool kids who aren't getting uh, group care right now. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the estimates suggest probably uh, north of $10 billion for the, a year for the whole program once it's rolled out. But uh, given the scale of job creation that uh, could be anticipated, uh, again, that cost is, is uh, going to be uh, outweighed by the new revenues that come back to both the federal and provincial government. So are you expecting, in terms of this rollout, and you're quite right, because the administration of all of these programs falls to the provinces and territories, uh, do you sense a sort of universal uh, appetite for administering these programs? I mean, there are some provinces, Ontario and Quebec, one thinks of first, Jim, as being most enthusiastic about it. British Columbia right in that pack as well. Is it going to be universally accepted? No, I think there will be some some negotiations, and there will be some premiers uh, who you know who adopt a very go slow approach for whatever reason. In some cases, you know, I think there's a, still a bit of carryover of some of the kind of old fashioned ideas that you know children should be cared for at home, and that group childcare is some kind of government takeover or something. You know, there's a bit of that still out there. Um, most provinces, though, I think are, are going to be with the program. They've already got something like this in Quebec, Sterling. They've mm-hmm. had it since the late 1990s. Exactly, that's, yeah. That's where they do. They did prove that the benefits for female labor force participation are huge. So in Quebec, working women participate more and are, are high, more highly employed than anywhere else in Canada. And the provincial government gets a lot of tax revenue because of that. So in, in Quebec's case, they're already partway there. BC, of course, is trying to move ahead with its own uh, its own childcare plans. So right. I would think they would accept the federal money with open arms. Mm-hmm. Um, in other provinces, think of some of the prairie provinces where childcare is currently the weakest in Canada. Uh, that's where you may you know you may have to have some head to head negotiations to get this thing over the line. Interesting stuff. So uh, we're not to not to expect much uh, from the minister on Monday, uh, because you're right. It's it's uh, it's an update. It's a fiscal update. It's uh, there will be few anchors and it'll be an opportunity to look at some of the numbers. There are just a lot of Canadians who are sort of cowering in corners already, Jim, anticipating the final reckoning because it ain't going to be pretty. In the meantime, this is fascinating stuff and it is going to be uh, a very, very much run up the old flag poll by the government of Canada. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So as they do, let's uh, let's make a date right here, right now to talk about it once uh, they have more for us to talk about. I look forward to that, Sterling. Thank me, you very much. Me too. Dr. Jim Stanford from the Center for Future Work. 
Right now, we turn our attention to tourism. And boy, this is a sector of the Canadian economy that has been absolutely hammered by COVID-19. And this week, we learned that the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada has joined other similar organizations in calling for urgent federal funding from financial relief programs as the second wave of pandemic shutters even more businesses. Here to talk about it from the Indigenous Tourism of Canada Association is the president and CEO. Keith Henry on the line. Mr. Henry, Keith, good morning and thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, it's good to have you with us, Keith. Let's talk about this. Let's take a look at the big picture because the Indigenous Tourism Association is of Canada. So let's talk about the, the implications on a national scale in terms of real raw dollars, Keith. Yeah, well, Indigenous tourism prior to the pandemic was worth just about $2 billion, about 40,000 jobs, and we had about 1,700 businesses across the country. And as a result of the, you know, the first wave was really challenging. We were all hoping the second wave wouldn't be as bad. But sure. Here we are, and um, we expect that the, if things unfold as we forecast, um, we could lose, you know, over basically over 1,200 businesses. Now, is this approach to the federal government, and Andrew and I received a press release earlier in the week indicating that this was underway, and you, you break it down, and we'll talk about some of the uh, of the allocations of, of the amount of money that you're, you're uh, asking the feds for, but clearly, you're not alone in this regard, Keith. You and many other, we've had Walt Judas from the Tourism Industry Association of British Columbia and other leaders from the sector uh, on the program in, in the weeks and, and days gone by, so it's rather a long line isn't it it is it's really challenging i mean tourism is really you know quite a large industry for the, the economy here in british columbia and across yeah. the country and i think a lot of people don't realize how much it is uh, uh you know it's it's one of our largest uh, drivers of direct gdp to this country and to this province and a lot of people may not realize how many jobs are spun out of tourism and you know I, there's just a lot of misunderstandings how large the sector is but as you said in the outset, you know, we are being absolutely hammered and, um, you know, survival is just not possible for a very large majority of our businesses. So, you know, Canadians and, and British Columbia here, we have a choice. You know, do we want to support businesses to somehow survive this or not? I mean, because in our case, in one way or another, the, you know, the government will end up, people will access programs one way or another. And in, in, in our case, you know, unfortunately, in many of our Indigenous communities, if there's not a job and if there's not, you know, a, a business that's stable that can at least keep going, uh, the fact is people will end up on the system, if I can say that one way or another. Sure, so yeah. it's a choice. It really comes down to, and right now we feel, many of us in the industry, that the programs that have been set up are helpful. They're not hitting the mark. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, we hear this from, from other sectors, the hospital, uh, across the spectrum of, of your sector, which includes hotels and restaurants and whale watching. And my gosh, it's such a wide spectrum of activity. But we're hearing uh, the similar uh, reports back from right across the, the, the broadest uh, spectrum uh, in, in terms of job losses and, and, uh, and, and lost momentum. And that's, and what we're talking about now is the, the numbers that you were quoting to me just a few moments ago. Keith, those were 2019 numbers. That's not far ago. Uh, and all you're looking for is to try and at least aim back towards targeting, getting to those numbers in the next year or two, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we you know, uh, we're hoping that, the, you know, obviously tourism will be changed, you know, for, for a number of years. And we know Canadians will want to travel. We know people in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland and BC will want to travel. 
So that's going to be our target. And, and, and the fact is we, we have a plan of how to get back to, you know, those sales numbers and those job levels and that. But it's going to take some immediate, uh, you know, pivoting and some adjustments to federal programs yeah. and some direct new federal investments. And right now we just don't we don't it's we don't see that and that's a really big challenge for us and that's what i was, I was trying to get to earlier is from from across the the full spectrum of the industry we're hearing more and more frequently uh complaints or reports of targeting of, of these programs that the feds have concocted that are are intended to hit the target and help but don't and there are people falling between the cracks and uh, the the cracks are pretty deep and uh, there there are more than a few people involved so what specifics would the indigenous tourism industry see the feds do that they're not doing terribly well right now well there's there's three things we we've put out a second wave response we in the first wave of covid we had a very specific set of tactics one was our stimulus grant program others was some specific marketing work we did and most of those we were able to execute you know, and and along the way, the federal government is you know adjusting their federal program. Sure. So they're still not there. This time, though, we're actually we're we're asking for eighteen point three million dollars for three specific areas. The first is uh, you know enhancing our grant program. So what we did is for for each of our businesses we pro- uh, that qualified, we were helping about uh, you know with the, up to twenty five thousand dollars. So for short term cash mm-hmm. to help them uh, somehow stay somewhat operational, so they didn't completely go insolvent or, or bankrupt which isn't a lot of money, but it's it's helpful to mm-hmm. keep the doors open. And so what we're doing is we want to top that program up by 10000 per business. We've already handed out just about 700 grants across the country, many of which here in B.C. We've invested uh, now almost about $4 million in the British Columbia alone. So these are things that have to to keep the doors and the lights the doors open and the lights on. Yeah, uh, this, that's a big part of it. Uh, the second part is a, a sub- significant uh, domestic marketing campaign. Well, we know the second wave will end, so we need to prepare for that marketing campaign mm-hmm. now. And we're talking a very significant piece around that. Uh, what we've done some market research, and a lot of consumers just don't know where to find Indigenous tourism. Usually, still, even though uh, you know we've been here for a number of years, so we want to. We have a very specific set of tactics, and along with that, what we want to create is a 25% incentive program. So uh, reimburse uh, consumers up to 25% of paid on receipt uh, uh, proof that they're going to spend money at Indigenous tourism businesses across the country. So we've outlined that. And then the third area is uh, really simply around triaging our businesses to make sure that they're taking advantage of these federal relief programs. Because as it stands today, uh, things like commercial rent relief, less than 5% of our, our businesses in the country have applied for that program. Mm-hmm. Uh, emergency wage subsidy, less than 25% of our businesses have even bothered with the program. And, 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 there's, other, and there's another piece of the, those federal programs. But the fact is, through our own research and our strategy, we know that our businesses are not applying because the programs are complicated. They are not clear. There's a tremendous amount of administrative paperwork to get through the process. And we're just seeing that... Uh, we got to find a better way, an effective way to help our businesses. Uh, so that's the three elements of what we want to do. And what sort of, uh, what are you hearing back? I know there's going to be some kind of financial update, and I put that in quotes on Monday from the feds as they, uh, you know, look uh, towards the, the new year and all the rest of it. What, what are you hearing uh, because you applied for a specific amount of money? What sort of response, if any, have you had back, Keith? 
Well, we, you know, we've had, you know, we've had some signals already. We applied, we sent this in, and there was no official application. We've already let our industry know, look, we don't know if this is going to come or materialize. We've also been part of another uh, uh, group of uh, industry leaders within tourism called the Coalition of Hardest Hit Businesses. And as you say, there's a lineup of people, yeah. the airline industry. So we are all hoping and praying that the federal government has heard us. Um, I, I have had signals in terms of our specific amount of that for the 18.3. I've had, me, uh, you know, a discussion with uh, Minister uh, Jolie's office, who is federal tourism. And of course, because we're Indigenous, we, we deal a lot with Indigenous Services Canada, Minister Miller. So their staff have, have been in contact. So we sub- submitted it, you know, in the, this last two weeks. And we've had some, I think, re- re- you know, reasonable signals. But to be really candid, I'm not 100% sure where this is going to go. Yeah. I am very worried. I don't know because ultimately this comes out of finance and Minister Freeland, and we're going to hear about that on Monday. And I'm very worried, and I hope that, uh, you know, because in the fall throne, fall throne speech, they did reference that they would support some of the, you know, sector specific work but we're not we haven't really heard much about that since then so mm. i so we're making the efforts i can assure uh, uh, you that this these things are happening on a weekly basis on a daily basis in many cases uh but um you know we just know that it's really a choice and we're going to accept whatever outcome comes out of that and but the fact is in, in bc here and across the country like to put this in the context we have been band-aiding our industry from complete collapse since COVID hit, and and I understand everyone is facing these challenges, but tourism is being is the first hit, hardest hit, and it'll be the last to recover. You You're know, that's quite a, right. That's the saying here, and the fact is, if we don't, we have lost as it stands. If this materializes what we're forecasting, we've lost over thirty years of, of investment and growth, and that would be an absolute shame at a time when, you know, uh, you know, we we need to stabilize sectors. So, you know, this is a very serious challenge. For it us. is indeed. Now, Keith, you mentioned a few moments ago that Canadians still have a lot to learn about Indigenous tourism. How can we learn about the Indigenous Tourism Association? Where do we go online, for example? Well, if you want to check out some of our research and the things we're talking about, like the second wave response, yeah. go to indigenoustourism.ca forward slash corporate. Um, that's where all of our sort of corporate documents are, and that's our main national website. Uh, if you're a visitor wanting to look to see where you can still try and experience some, which I know it's very challenging right now with the limited travel and the restrictions, but there are some of our businesses that are open. We feature over 250 Indigenous experiences on destinationindigenous.ca. So either indigenoustourism.ca forward slash corporate or destinationindigenous.ca for visiting and, and seeing what kind of experiences what, that I'm, uh, I guess, the backdrop of what I'm talking about. Indeed. Well, thanks very much for that tip, and we appreciate your time this morning as well, Keith Henry. We'll uh, follow this uh, file very closely and get back to you when, hopefully, there's some activity to talk about. Keith Henry is president and CEO of the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. According to one of the better newspaper writers in this town, Charlie Smith over at the Georgia Strait, quote, only a week after the World Health Organization declared on March 11th that the COVID-19 outbreak was a pandemic, the Vancouver Foundation sprang into action, launching the Community Response Fund. With support from Van City, the United Way of the Lower Mainland, and the city, the Community Response Fund distributed more than 19 million to various charities in three months. It's a pleasure to welcome the CEO and president of the Vancouver Foundation, Kevin McCourt, joins us. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Good morning. 
Uh, good morning, Shirley. Nice to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And and this this is a, a, an astonishing story. Charlie goes on in, in his article in the straight to describe uh, the community response program and all the rest of it. But with those sorts of mega bucks uh, and and the uh, the ability to come to the relief of so many people so quickly, a lot of people listening to us right now, Kevin, are wondering what on earth is the Vancouver Foundation. Yeah, well, it's a 77-year-old institution that's based on endowments, and it was established by Vancouver residents back in the 1940s uh, with an initial $1,000 gift, and the income from that fund was to be used to support people in poverty. And over the intervening years, many people have left gifts to the foundation in their estates, made a gift when they've sold a company. And so we have an endowment that generates income every quarter that we give to charities. And it was that model, the fact that we had that money given to us over many years that generates money made us able to respond immediately. We didn't have to go and raise money because people had already given it to us for use um, to help our community when it needs help. Well, it's interesting, and Charlie quoted you as saying the foundation has never given away so much money on an emergency initiative in such a short period of time, ever. Yeah, it's true, and the um, the foundation really had, in, many years ago, really had seen itself as a, a, a organization that supports long-term development work or supports ongoing arts and culture programs, yes. and it was a, a shift in our in our who we believe we are that we were able to uh, make us response so make such a big shift in strategy. So at the foundation, because it has been so well endowed, this goes back to 1943, correct, Kevin? That's right, 1943. Yeah, so people have been leaving, have been contributing to the Vancouver Foundation and leaving uh, bequeathments in their estates and so on for literally 75 plus years to the point where a part of the foundation, one of your permanent staff members, is an investment fund manager, correct? That's right, yeah. The endowment now is around $1.3 billion dollars. And we have given away over our history well over a billion dollars. So it's a com- most of that money that we've given away has been the earnings that we have made off of the endowment, the, the gifts that people have left us. That's phenomenal. I mean, and again, uh, is there a specific reason why you are so low, pri- low profile, why so few people uh, you tap a person on the street and you say, so what, do you, what can you tell me about the Vancouver Foundation? You get the blankest possible stare. I don't know. I've never heard of them. Is that deliberate? Uh, no, it's not deliberate, but it's one of the consequences of what we try to do because we don't want to compete with the charities that are in the front lines because we're raising money for them. Right. The only organizations we can fund are charities. So if we have too high a profile, then the local charities um, may – it just causes com- conflict in the marketplace. So we want to be the organization where fund managers where and lawyers, where estate, aid, estate uh, planners, we want them to know about us. So that when they're working with their clients who are leaving estate gifts or uh, want to make significant gifts, they'll know who we are. So it, it is. Uh, we would love it if the public knew more about us right. because we are a major funder. We're the second biggest funder of the charitable sector in the province after government. Right. Uh, so if anybody in the charitable sector knows who we are, but the general public, uh, as you said, tends not to know who we are because of the way that we work. And and and, 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 and those first few months of the pandemic, when you had the opportunity to 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 deliver uh, close to twenty million dollars to very deserving individuals and agencies, perhaps the most active 
active you've been ever. Um, and can you talk to us a little bit about who were the recipients in those early days when things were just so confused and, and job losses were so dramatic uh, and, and government funds weren't quite there yet? How did you help out, Kevin? Yeah, so we started off with uh, the, the recognizing that many charities on the front lines, those that are serving uh, vulnerable populations, were seeing an increase in demand while simultaneously seeing a, a complete drop off of their revenue. Yes, their uh, events were canceled, and and the government programs weren't in place. So we went to organizations that we know because we grant to charities all the, every year, year in year out, and went to frontline agencies such as the you know the Wish drop-in center or to the Bloom Group, or organizations that run housing in the downtown east side, mm-hmm. uh, food banks. Um, and we said, we know you're doing good work, and we gave them gifts. And we, and we just, then we, as the demand started picking up, we brought in a community advisors, so, which is a really important part of the way that we work. So charities would tell us what they need, front lines, um, vulnerable population serving charities. Then we review those with volunteers drawn from the community who make recommendations about who we fund. In that process, so we had we had dozens of volunteers working, helping review the applications and uh, picking the ones that that they felt were uh, that that we should support. Well, you know, it's it's. I think it's a very timely conversation we're having this morning too, Kevin, because of course we have, uh, and I'll, I'll, you, you've written a blog about this, and I'll get you to comment on on the appointment of Nikki Sharma to the uh, parliamentary uh, secretary for for charities, uh, a new uh, configuration from the Horgan government. But it is that time of year, especially with a, a peculiar arrangement of small businesses in some parts of Canada being disallowed from even selling their wares and big box stores. We don't have that as much in BC, but we do have a lot of people very nervous about going to anybody's store. And this is a time of year when uh, when charitable donations are, are, are front of mind for a lot of us. People, in, in fact, in many cases, postpone charitable thinking even until December. And so this is an important conversation to have, as was the appointment of a parliamentary secretary for charities. Talk to us about why you wrote this blog this week. Well, yeah, two reasons. One is we know um, that the, the charities that, that we're funding are really important in helping our communities recover. And so we want people to give to those charities. And as you said, people will think about their charitable giving at this time of year. Yeah. If you know a charity in your neighborhood and, and you like what they do, give to them directly. And, and that, that, but that sector, those charitable organizations uh, also often work directly with government. And, and they often work with multiple parts of government. So the appointment of Nikki Sharma as the point person for uh, community development and nonprofits gives our sector a point in government to coordinate our work with because we want the charitable sector to play its role in the recovery. Mm-hmm. And government recognized how, how they could work more effectively with us with a, par- a parliamentary secretary. And, and we're thrilled to have that, that recognition of the, the structure of government can change to work with us. And, and very happy that Nikki Sharma from Vancouver Hastings has been appointed in that role. Well, it, it will it facilitate. It'll make, uh, it'll, it'll make, if anything, it should help on the communication side, because, of course, you do need a coordinated effort to be successful. And finally, having an actual coordinator is not a bad idea at all, is it, Kevin? Yeah, we're quite happy. Very happy. Interesting. So now, if people want to find out more about the Vancouver Foundation, they can go online to vancouverfoundation.ca. And while you're quite comfortably well endowed, you say you have over a million bucks in the bank being managed professionally. Do people still contribute, donate, and otherwise get involved? And if so, how? 
Yeah, they do. We have our community fund, which people, if they want to support general community purposes and needs, they can donate to that fund. But they also, if they have specific organizations that they want, we manage funds for hundreds of charities. They can donate directly to them through our, our fund, through to those, those endowments. Or they can just you know, go directly to the charities that they love. They don't need to come through us if they we're there to help for those who want uh, to use our services. But we also encourage people to give directly to charities especially at this time of year. Kevin McCourt, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. You and your very quiet but incredibly efficient organization in our midst. Uh, Please, uh, we wish you considerable continued success. And uh, thank you for for joining us this morning. Well, thanks, Sterling, for helping us tell our story and, and increase our profile a little bit. Not at all. My pleasure. There's Kevin McCourt, the president and CEO of the VancouverFoundation.ca, if you want to learn more. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.